have, which is your word. And pray, Lord, that uh, through the preaching this morning, that we would all be edified and that you would be glorified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I needed a long prayer there, man. <laughs> all right, here in Titus chapter number 2, we're going to begin reading in verse number 12. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Then it says this in verse number 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse number 14 as well, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now, I, as the pastor of the ch this church, am going to endeavor and assure that our church is known for two things. I'm going to make sure that we are known for two things. When I turn over in my grave, when I die and I'm buried, I'm put in my grave, you know, permanently, I'm going to assure that this church is known for two things. Number one, defending the gospel of grace, defending the fact that salvation is easy and that the only requirement is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to fight against the false gospel of works until the end. Well, number one. Number two, I am going to preach. You, you better be used to it if you plan on staying here for a long time. I'm going to repeatedly harp on and preach the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. Those two doctrines right there are two of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible. When you start at the very beginning of the Bible, it's pointing towards Jesus Christ. It's pointing towards Jesus Christ. When you get to the very end of the Bible, you know who you have seated on the throne? The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know what that's meant to do? It's very clear when you're reading it that the whole purpose of that ending is to give all glory to whoever is seated upon that throne. That's the whole reason of Revelation chapter number 22. That is the purpose. That is the purpose of the Bible. Let me say this. That is the purpose of life. That is the purpose of creation. God created this world to bring himself glory, and the means by which he receives that glory is Jesus Christ. All glory is meant to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of life. That's the purpose of your Bible. When you're reading your Bible, constantly you have God talking about how great he is, all the glory that he deserves in the Old Testament, which he can because it's true, right? We can't do that because we don't deserve that. So constantly all throughout the Old Testament. But then we have Jesus show up. And it's very, very clear that the person that was speaking in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. See what that's doing is all of that glory in the Old Testament that God is deserving of, that God is saying, I am the Lord and there's none else, there's no God beside me, points it to Jesus. It ends up giving it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be preaching on a very specific aspect where I'm proving the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ just clearly and just concisely this morning. And it's on the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. I'm going to be talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are you know, all different types of denominations of Christianity, right? There are so many different types of denominations of Christianity. There are, which, which I wouldn't even put them into this, but in the, uh, the world of Christendom or the secular world of theology, they would say that Jehovah's Witnesses are a form of Christians, right? So let's just humor them. Let's say Jehovah's Witnesses way out, you know, way out on the end. They would say, hey, we're a form of Christians, right? Who do they believe is coming back? They believe Jesus, right? But do they believe that it is the Lord coming back? No. 
They do not believe that it is the Lord. Do they believe that it is Jehovah coming back? Because when I say Lord, I believe the Bible, like Deuteronomy 6, 4, that the Lord our God is one Lord, that there is only one Lord. They may say the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. They may make that statement, but they don't believe that it's the God of the Old Testament. They don't believe that it's Jehovah of the Old Testament actually coming back, right? So if you ask the Jehovah's Witness, hey, do you believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? They would say yes, right? But they mean something very different than what we mean. And they mean something very different than what the Bible says when it's talking of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, of course, you have Mormons. What would they say? Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would almost fall into the same category. Both of them pretty much believe that... Uh, uh, so they, Mormons would say that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a lesser God. And they would be very out, uh, uh, outwardly about the fact that, hey, we believe in more than one God. Jehovah's Witnesses do as well. But they would more so put the emphasis on him being a created being, right? They would say they would be they would fall more into the category of who's coming back really as a as a, as a man that was uh, you know elevated or achieved divinity. That's more where Jehovah's Witnesses would put themselves, right? But then you also have those that would uh, fall into the category of the Catholic Trinity, the Orthodox Trinity, right? And they believe you know in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they believe that He is God. They would even say, hey, He's the God of the Old Testament. Creator of the earth. But obviously they have a lot of uh, uh, disconnects in their doctrine. What they believe is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, that's really only one third of the Godhead that's coming back. That's really only one of the three which make up God. I believe that all of God, every bit of Him, the one and only true God who was the only person that was there before the foundation of the earth. The one God who spoke this world into existence, the Lord of Israel. That one God is who is coming back when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the God of the Old Testament. So we need to understand, obviously this ties in with who is the identity of the person of Christ? Who is he? Well, the Bible teaches that he is clearly God. You stay there. In Titus chapter number 2, I'm going to read from you for a for you from a couple of passages just bolstering uh, the fact that when Jesus came the first time, of course, the Bible teaches it was God with us. Matthew chapter number 1 verse number 23 says that exactly, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is Michael the Arch Archangel with us. No, no, no. God with us. Right. That's who was with us. It wasn't just a man with us. But just a man like everybody else. It was God with us. Amen. John chapter number 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is going to become relevant later. That's why I chose these two verses here. So notice the Word is God, right? John 1, 14. And the Word was made flesh. So what was the Word? What were we told who the Word was? It's God. And then what does it say? The Word was made flesh. What's another way that you could word that? God was made flesh, right? The Word was made fat flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We test that with 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And it says this, God was manifest in the flesh. It's basically saying the exact same thing as John 1.14. The Word was made flesh means God was made flesh. We were just told that. Of course, it is the literal spoken Word of God. So, so God is who came in the flesh. God himself, the Lord of the Old Testament, came in the flesh at the first coming, right? He came 
He was crucified. He died on the cross, right? And then he rose again. He was resurrected. That was God who did these things. This is important to understand. But this is where I identify who this person is, right? You know, he, he, he bore you know, our, our sins and our guilt on the cross. That was God. And then he died and rose again. Scripture all throughout the Old Testament prophesies of the, of the day of the coming of God himself. All throughout the Old Testament, there, the Bible is very clear, and, and, and it doesn't matter who you are, in what denomination, you, even Muslims, let me, this just popped into my mind. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but even Muslims teach that there is a day when, who they would say is Allah, right? That's their word in Aramaic for God, the one God that they would say. Jehovah of the Old Testament, they would agree that that was one of his names. They would say that there's a day when he's going to come to the earth. And they also believe, because they reject the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are vehemently opposed to the fact that Jesus is that one God. They also believe in the second coming of Jesus. But they'd say, that's just a prophet. That's just a man like Muhammad, right? They believe in the... So almost, almost all you know, denominations of Christianity would admit, even Mormons, all of them, would admit that there's a time in which that the creator of the earth himself is going to come back to this earth. He's going to come to his creation. Well, I'm going to prove to you this morning that, it, that that is true. The Bible does teach that, and it is going to be Jesus Christ, because he is the creator of the earth. I'm going to show you that repeatedly. Now, right here in Titus chapter number 2, where I want to begin, I want you to notice here in Titus chapter number 2, look at verse number 13. The Bible says this, looking for that blessed hope. Now, you heard a lot of preaching about the blessed hope, right? Of course, it's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. And then it said this, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice what it says there. It says, looking for that blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? It says this, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now you notice when you read this verse, it's telling, it tells you very clearly what the blessed hope is. And it says this, it says that it is, the blessed hope is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior. And then it tells you who it is, Jesus Christ. Those are two descriptives or, or two different titles that are being given unto the same person. It says the glorious appearing, it says the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who it is. The great God is Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Savior is Jesus Christ. Now, I need not to go through all of the scores of the verses in the Old Testament where God is clearly, over and over again, explaining that I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. And then he goes on to say that he is the only Savior. I mean, there are, there are so many times, especially in the book of Isaiah, where he clarifies and he declares to be the Savior. There's no Savior beside him. But I'm going to prove to you, because there are people that will try to attest, that will try to attack this, right, and protest that interpretation of the Scripture. But I'm going to prove to you in a couple of different ways from this passage itself, and then just clearly, I mean, as, as it, there's no ambiguity about this at all. I'm going to show you over and over again that when Jesus Christ comes back, that that is the appearing of the Savior, and it is the appearing of the great God. Now, I want you to notice verse number 13. We're going to read that verse in its entirety together again, but then I want to continue to read uh, the contest. It says this, 
looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it says this, who? How many people is that talking about? One. What is that doing? It's summarizing who it was just talking about. You know who? The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Watch this. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself. Who does that sound like it's talking about? God, maybe? Purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And, and just a small point, a sub-point quickly. Of course, in the Old Testament, that, that language of peculiar people... That is referencing back to the Old Testament, how God was purifying unto himself the children of Israel, a peculiar people, right? Zealous of good works. I want to further prove that this is speaking of the same person, because people will try to say, hey, well, the great God and our Savior are two different people, right? They're, they're two different people. It's great God, well, that's, the, that's God himself in heaven, and then Jesus Christ, who, yeah, he's a God, but he's not the great God. Okay, well, I want you to look with me at... Verse number 10 in this exact same context, it says this, Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of, watch this, God our Savior in all things. What happened there? It's just talking about the same person, isn't it? It just didn't put an and in between. You know, The Bible often repeats the same things. Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? The first and the last. Repeating the same thing puts an and in between it. Talking about the same thing. Talking about how he is eternal from beginning to end or Alpha and Omega. Saying the same thing in a different way. It's, it's right here. What it's doing is, in verse number 13, it's speaking of two different aspects of the same person, Jesus Christ. He is the great God, but guess what? He wanted to focus on the fact that he is our Savior. That's why it goes into the fact that he died for us. So notice there that before you get to verse 13, it already tells you that God is the Savior. So once you, once you read verse number 13, it tells you the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior. Jesus Christ. Furthermore, look at chapter number 3, verse number 4. We'll see it again. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. So, smack right dab in between both of those passages where you're taught by the writer who Paul believes that, and of course, Holy Scripture is teaching you this through the Holy Spirit, you are told who the great God is, the Savior, and you are told who the Savior is. Guess who it is? God. I'll further prove that to you from the New Testament. Like I said, I'm not going to belabor the point and go through the Old Testament all the times we're told that God is the only Savior. It says in Jude, I want to use a New Testament verse here, Jude verse number 25, it says, To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Did you notice that? The only wise God. There isn't multiple gods. There's not a great God and another God. It's the only wise God, he says, our Savior. If you believe in multiple gods, you have one God that's wise and one God that's not wise. That's how you would have to interpret that. To the only wise God. Furthermore, in the book of Jude itself, and we went over this just, I believe it was last Sunday night, it begins by saying this in verse number, where is it? Verse number... For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, it says, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, the only Lord God. Who is that? That's the great God and our Savior. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 19. We're looking at some clear passages in the New Testament first to begin very simply where the Bible speaks of when Jesus Christ comes, that it is the coming of the Lord. 
The phrase uh, in the New Testament, Lord Jesus Christ, is used over 150 times. It's used over 150 times. I'm going to read to you from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse number 7. The Bible says, So that ye come behind in no gift. And then it says this, Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. You're in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 19. The Bible reads, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? And then he says this, Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So when Jesus comes back, is it just the coming of a prophet, according to the New Testament? Is it just the coming of a man? A divinely, you know, uh, elevated man? No, it's the coming of, Paul says, our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, just one book to the right. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then it says this, and by our gathering together unto him. So I want you to notice that, that to stick out in your mind for a moment. Notice again, number one, the most important thing is that it is not just the coming of Jesus, it is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God himself who's going to come back to his own creation. That's an amazing thought when you stop and think about that. When you think about, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the God who spoke to Adam and said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Think about that. You think about actual times where, where God intervened and spoke with people. Like God appears to Abraham and he says, walk before me and be thou perfect. And God comes to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter number one, and he says, before I, before I knew thee in the belly, or before thou wast in, I can't remember, I, I quoted it wrong in the very beginning there. But he says, before he was in his mother's womb, basically, he says, I knew thee. And he says that I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet. So that same God that was speaking to the prophets of old in the Old Testament, that God is the God that's going to be coming back to his own creation. It's Jesus Christ. I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1 now. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. That's what it is. I said before I knew thee. I was like, that's not right. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. That's what the Bible says. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. Because what people will say, and this is, this is going to be very, you know, this will be very helpful to you this morning. Because I want every person in our church to be able to defend two things. I want to stop here for a moment. I want everyone's strong attention. Every person in this church needs to be able to defend two things. And if you can't do this, you know, sincerely you would let me down. This is what I want our church to be known of. Number one, I want you to be able to earnestly defend against any person the gospel of grace. Against anyone. I want you to be able to shut down any argument where somebody tries to say, hey, look, here, you know, let me take you to James 2. You know, let me show you why you must have works. Look at the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter number 6, Hebrews chapter number 4, Hebrews chapter number 2. All these passages they try to take you to. I want you to be able to defend against any person... Any devil that might try to talk you out of the gospel of grace. Number one. Number two, I want you, every person in our church, to be able to just strongly affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to be able to just prove backwards and forwards, no matter who you bump into, who comes to your door, whose door you knock on, that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. Amen. That brings glory to him every time you do that. Do we tell you who Jesus is? He's the 
creator of the earth. Let me prove it to you right now. Oh, you think he's just a man? Well, let me show you a couple passages that can prove that wrong. Oh, you, oh okay. You don't think he's the creator. Well, let me, let me, let me take you to Colossians chapter number one, real quick. Let me take you to Colossians one. Let me take you to John one. You need to know these things. You need to be able to prove the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are bringing glory to him. He is pleased mightily if you are able to just shut down these arguments and, and just. You know, the Bible talks about stopping the mouths of the wicked. Like in Titus chapter 1. That's what we need to do. Whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Those people, what does that mean? They're going from house to house too. Think about that. They're going around from house to house. Maybe a JW. Maybe a Mormon. You know? Hey, even, hey, you, know, you throw the Orthodox, even maybe the new IFB. They are, they, whatever, you know. I believe they're saved, of course. But they are taking glory away from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what you need to do? Shut down their arguments. Amen. You need to prove that, hey, he's not only the Son of God, he is the great God. Right. He's not only just a man that came and was born and just the second person of the Trinity, while you know, he who is greater than me is seated in heaven. That's foolishness. Amen. You need to be able to explain, like that, for example. You need to be able to explain those passages when somebody says, you know, why, why did Jesus say that his father's greater than him? Well, hey, Hebrews chapter number 2 tells you that he was made a little lower than the angels. Why? Because he took upon himself limitations in the flesh. He was that God that was seated in heaven. That's what you would do. First take him and show him, hey, the son of man which is in heaven. So number one, we can establish it's the same person that's seated in heaven. Well, now let's try to explain what's the difference. Well, logically, it makes sense that it's his flesh. He's weak. He's tired. Is God in heaven weak and tired? Of course not. So that makes sense. Now let me prove that's what it actually says. Look at Hebrews 2. He was made a little lower than the angels. What does that mean? He took upon himself limitations when he came down to this earth. Argument dismantled, game over. You can have a different opinion. You're wrong. The Bible clearly teaches that the reason why Jesus Christ, was, that his father was a little greater than him at that time, was because he was made a little lower than the angels. You know what that does? That brings more glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's him seated upon that throne all at the same time. Brings glory to his omnipresence. It just shows how powerful he is. Then it makes sense when he says that he raised himself from the dead. You know? So we need to be able to bring glory to Jesus. This is important. So even in a very specific aspect like this, you need to be able to show that the coming of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, is the coming and the glorious appearing of our great God. That's what we're going to be looking at right now. So 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse number 1, what we read before, notice that it said, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it said, by our gathering together unto him. So that's very important, of course, our gathering together unto him. That would be like, you know, him coming, the Bible talks about him coming for his saints and with his saints, right? I'm going to be kind of mixing together the coming when he comes. Because there's really two comings if you want to be very specific. There's the coming when we are raptured and we are taken out. And then God's wrath takes place. And then there's the coming in Revelation 19. These are separate events, right? But the Bible will talk about these, the, the, both of these comings as the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Because they are both, both times he is coming to the earth. One time he comes and gathers us together, right? But another time, we come actually fully to the earth, and there's a battle that takes place. I'm going to be using passages from both of these comings, okay, and proving that it is the coming of Jehovah himself, coming of the Lord 
God, the great God and our Savior. I want you to look there at 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. I want, to go, I want you to go, so go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want you to look at me at verse number 7. It says this, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So notice, Lord Jesus being revealed from heaven. This is the coming of Jesus. That's kind of a trigger right there, with his mighty angels. Yeah, I think that's talking about God, my friend. I don't think Moses and Elijah have their angels. These are my mighty angels. I don't think that that's talking about just a man, right? With his mighty angels. Verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just over and over again, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, watch this, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Verse 10 is what I want to focus on. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Notice the glory goes to Jesus. He's admired, he's glorified. He, he, notice what it says in the word exactly, glorified. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints. Remember the God of the Old Testament said something about, my glory will I not give to another? Well, when Jesus comes back, he's going to be receiving glory. You actually look at the Gospels when it talks about, and I believe it's Luke 21. It's one of the uh, passages of the Olivet Discourse. It says that he's coming back in his Father's glory. And one, another passage you compare also to another parallel of the Olivet Discourse, Discourse it says he's coming back in his glory. Right. Why? Because the Father's glory is his glory. Amen. Because the great God is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. They're the same. They're the, they're the same person. Right. But I want you to notice here, obviously saw Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. But it says this, he'll be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. So this is the time when he's coming with his saints. I want you to go to uh, now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Just go back one chapter again. 2 Thessalonians, oh no, actually I'm sorry, that's where we're at. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so go back one book again. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. I want you to notice this again. I'm going to build up a picture here of when he comes back. Descriptives of what's going to be taking place and who will be there. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, the Bible says this. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. And then it says this, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. With all his saints. So what's going to be taking place and who's going to be with him? Very clearly. We see it twice now. Who? The saints will be his mighty angels also, that's true, and his saints. So notice, I mean, again, side point, side note, they're his angels and these are his saints. You notice that? We're talking about the great God and our Savior here. That's why. Okay? But I want you to notice a, an identifier of this event when he comes back. He has who with him? His saints. His saints. That's very important. Go to Jude. Go to the book of Jude. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. Look at verse 14. Look at verse number 14 in the book of Jude. It says this in Jude, verse number 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Now, I want you to notice that this is a prophecy of the Old Testament. What does it tell you? That the Lord cometh. Now, who do you think that's talking about? It's a prophecy of the Old Testament. God, of course. The Lord cometh with 10,000.
thousands, and then it says further, of his saints. He was prophesying of the great God coming. I mean, I think that that's pretty clear. Now, there may be uh, some protest to that. Somebody may say, well, you know, I think it's talking and choosing the Lord there, just like it says that Christ, right, is, is Lord. And, and we don't, as Jehovah's Witnesses, they would say, we don't believe that he is Lord as in like, like you, know, uh, you know, I speak as a fool. It's hard to even formulate these ridiculous thoughts. Lord as in the one and only true God, Jehovah Lord, but he's just like a lesser Lord. Like, just like a lesser ruler, right? His under-ruler, right? His under-shepherd, right? Go to Zechariah chapter number 14. I'm going to prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that that is referring to the coming of Jehovah himself with his saints. Because that quote is not, that quote directly is not, is not uh, recorded from Enoch. But the Old Testament, you may or may not have noticed this before, but the Old Testament does prophesy of the coming of the Lord. And we're going to see specifically who that is. The coming of the Lord with all his saints. And we'll see who it is. Now, who does the New Testament say is coming when it specifically tells you the person who's coming with his saints? The Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Who did Titus chapter number 2 say the appearing was? The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Once you look at Zechariah chapter number 14, look with me at verse number 5. It says this, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now watch this. And the Lord my God shall come. Time out. You notice anything different about the word Lord now than we were reading in the New Testament? What is it? All capitalized. Now, I'm sure everyone, if you haven't watched one of my Jesus is Jehovah moments, I'm very disappointed in you. No, I'm just kidding. Lord, when it's all caps in the Bible, that is, a, that is the word Jehovah in Hebrew. That's why the King James Bible translators did that for us so that we could realize that this is not just the word Lord like we use it exactly in English. It can mean sir sometimes, right? And especially at the time of the King James translators. And even in Spanish, you know, Señor means Sir or Lord. They would say Señor Jesucristo, right? That means the Lord Jesus Christ is the same God, right? But then they would also say Señor just to say Sir. Well, that word exists, exists in the Old Testament too. But it's just, it's just an L, o, a, a lowercase O-R-D. So it could be a capital L if it's referring to God. So he could also be called Lord like that. Or it could be used to say, like, uh, uh, Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. But when you see all four letters capitalized, that is Jehovah. There is no doubt who we are talking about. It is the creator of the earth. Everyone agrees with that. Jehovah's Witnesses, this right here in their Bible, I didn't look at it. But if they were consistent and they were honest, you know who this would say? Jehovah my God. Because that's what it teaches and that's what it says. Unless they were trying to hide something, I'm looking that up after the service. I just thought of that. So look at what it says in verse number 5 again there at the end. It says, and the Lord my God shall come. So you know what that's saying? Jehovah my God shall come. Now look at what it says. And all the saints with thee. So who does the New Testament say is coming back? The Lord Jesus Christ. And who is he coming with? His saints. We looked that up in the Old Testament. That's prophesied. Just like Enoch prophesied and said that the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Well, Zechariah also prophesied of that. 
specifically tell you was coming. Jehovah, and then he says this. He says, Jehovah, my God. There's no way out of it. You know who's coming back with ten thousands of saints and with his saints and with all the saints and with his, his mighty angels? God himself. Man. The one and only true God. The Lord our God is one Lord. That God is coming back with his saints, according to Zechariah 14. Man. The whole Old Testament prophesies of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man. The whole Old Testament. Jehovah's Witnesses would, would agree, hey, yeah, Jesus is going to come back with the saints. And they're his saints, you know, because, you know, their foolishness. Jehovah gave them to them. The Bible teaches that Jehovah's coming back. Then we get to the New Testament, and the Bible, I'm sorry, the Bible teaches in the, in the New Testament, let's say, that Jesus Christ is coming with the saints. We look up these passages, they're prophesied of. And you know who the Bible teaches and tells you is coming? Jehovah himself. Jehovah himself. Go to Revelation chapter number 19. Revelation chapter number 19 now. Point out a couple of other interesting new things to you also here. Revelation chapter number 19. Revelation chapter number 19, and we're going to start in verse number 11 in just a moment. We're going to jump around and look at this from a couple of different angles, but this is actually the record of when Jesus Christ comes back. The Lord Jesus Christ comes back himself. And this, of course, is the, the returning of Jehovah that Zechariah was prophesying of when he said, The Lord my God shall come with his saints. Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus was Zechariah's God. That's who it was. Jesus, Zechariah was prophesying of Jesus coming back with his saints. You know who's going to come back with him? Zechariah. Zechariah will be one of the people, and that's his God. Just like Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Amen. Just like Jude said, the only Lord God. Right? And then he says, and just to let you know who it is, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know who it is? You know who the only Lord God is? The only one. And then he says, and our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ. Amen. People, you know, you think, I'm, I hope I'm not insulting your intelligence by repeating these things over and over again, but people try to twist this, even though it's so simple and it's so easy. You know, I don't understand why, but I love this doctrine. I love preaching about how Jesus is the Lord God of the Old Testament. Amen. I don't understand why people hate it so much. I don't understand why people fight against it so much. When the Bible's so clear, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way that you can interpret that. Either you have an internal contradiction in one verse, or, or the only Lord God is the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's it. That is it. There's no other way to interpret it. That's it. But, you know, people like to be smart, and, 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 and well, the only Lord God is a reference to the first person. Yeah, they're all the same gods, the only Lord God. Or they, they would try to say, you know, I guess they could say, well, that's, that's just... All three of them. The only Lord God. What happened to Deuteronomy 6.4? That's the greatest commandment in the Bible, Jesus said. The Lord our God is one Lord. One Lord. And then all throughout the Old Testament. He, he, I, I, my hand. Over and over again. My eyes, my ears. You know what he's describing? Person. One person. I mean, it's, it's so clear. I'm going to read to you uh, the context of Zechariah 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 so you know when this is speaking of and to show that it's speaking of Revelation 19. Zechariah 14, verse 1 said this, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, 
And thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. He says, as when he fought in the day of battle. Now watch this in verse 4. It's, it's very clear what it says. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. That's a literal physical coming that the Old Testament taught you of. Very clearly. His feet, it says, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east and on the mount of Olives, shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Of course, they go forth into a valley to fight, right? And half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So right here in Revelation 19 is that day that's being prophesied of, right? Revelation chapter number 19 we're given a description of Jesus Christ when he comes back. This is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone would agree with this as well. Jehovah's Witness would say, yes, this is the coming of Christ. Right? This is the coming, they'd say, this is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Jehovah, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Well, I'm going to further prove to you that this is the coming of Jehovah himself from Old Testament, New Testament. Compare scripture to scripture from multiple different passages. Once you look at Revelation chapter number 19, look at verse number 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, I saw that in John 1. Who was it? The Word was God, right? So, this is God, of course. Verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who is that? The Lord shall come with saints, saints right? Verse 15. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. What did Zechariah 14 that I read 1 through 4 say was going to happen? He's going to fight against the nations that gather together against him. So it said, uh, he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I'm going to pick this apart and go through a lot of elements here in just a moment. Look at verse number 17, though, the very first thing I want to point out to you within the context here itself. It says this, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper. Watch this. Of the great God. You notice that phrase, great God? Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Maybe Titus 2, right? Titus chapter number 2. The appearing of our great God, the great God and our Savior. What do we have here that's taking place? The supper of what? The great God. Now, I've proved this already that this supper is actually the destruction of the, uh, the other nations. And then the fowls come and they eat. So, you know, it's not a supper that we're going to be taking part in as far as uh, consuming the what's on the dinner plate, right? So, this is the supper of the great God. Why? Because it's the appearing. It is the appearing of the great God. It is the glorious appearing of the great God and it says, and our Savior Jesus Christ. So you see that same phrase you I'll prove that to you further. So notice it says at the end, one more time, I'm going to read it again. It says, Gather, the, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Okay? Look at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is coming, and says, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted
granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Notice that was the saints that were coming with it. Verse 9 now. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they which are called unto, watch this, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this supper is the supper of who? The great God. But then it's also the supper of the Lamb. Kind of like the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Kind of like when you flip over to Revelation chapter number 22, it says that it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. Amen. And then it says, and his servants shall serve him. Just like Titus 2.10 tells you, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And it says, who gave himself one person, Amen. one person, Christ. the throne of God and of the Lamb, and his, who, his, it's one person. Amen. Great God, the supper of the great God is the supper of the Lamb because it is the great God and our Savior, the Lamb. That's who it is. Amen. It's as clear as day. It's extremely clear. What was it talking about when it said the great God? It just shows the consistency of inspired scripture. That that phrase is used so limitedly in the New Testament. And we see great God as a reference to what? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one of the very few times we see it used again is when? In the actual description of the coming of the great God. It just shows the consistency. It shows the importance of studying your Bible. If you were to look up that phrase from Titus 2.10, you say, hey, I want to do a study on this. It's not used very much. Great God, where is it found in context? The coming. You look it up, where is it going to be found again? The coming. It just shows the, the, the importance. And when people go in there and they just, hey, I want to change this little word here. I want to change this word here. I want to start trans, you know, retranslating things. And obviously, uh, God has promised to preserve his word, and, and, and evil men will try to change God's word. You're messing it up. You're not making it any better. You're jacking things up, right? Because it's so intricate, and every little piece is there, and it ties in with and points you to other passages. So what you're doing is when that points you to this other passage and you try to just change that, because there's a big discussion about Titus 2.10. I don't know if you know that they discovered the Granville Sharp rule or whatever. And, uh, you know, this is, this is you know, something that, that came up, I believe, in like the 70s. And it's supposedly a way of translation. And, and there's like 10 points that go along with this rule or law when translating. And they totally changed Titus, 2, Titus chapter number 2, verse number 10. Or 13, I'm sorry. They totally changed it. And th this is one of their points that they always bring up, like, like a new, the new modern Bible version proponents. They when you try to say, hey, the new versions attack the deity of Christ, they'll say, no, they don't. Let me take you to Titus chapter number 2. And they put it together in their versions where it says, the great God, our Savior. So they just remove the and there. The great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So they would agree, the new modern Bible versions would agree, hey, this is talking about the same person. But that can be learned from our Bible. Right? And they make some other changes. Obviously, a lot of them actually take out great, and like that's why I was referring to that specifically. They make other changes as well. So they'll try to point to that, but that doesn't negate all the times when you take Lord out from before Jesus' name, where you try to teach that Joseph is Jesus' father. So the new modern Bible versions do attack the deity of Christ. No, you know, that doesn't bolster their case at all. So, that was the first thing I wanted to point out, is the great God is the Lamb, just like the great God is our Savior. Verse number 14, we saw that it is the saints that are coming with him. Clothed in fine linen and white, it talks about. The saints are coming. Verse number 15, I want to point out this identifier. It says that he has a, a sharp sword that's coming out of his mouth. It says this, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp
sword that with it he should smite the nations. So what is he doing? He's coming back and he's going to be punishing the wicked with this sharp sword that is in his mouth. I want you to go to the Old Testament now to Isaiah chapter number 26. We're going to go to a few different places. Isaiah chapter number 26. We're going to look at the end of Isaiah chapter number 26. Isaiah chapter number 26, verse number 21. It says this, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place. So what does this sound like? Sounds like the coming, right? Sounds like the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming of Jehovah, like in... Uh, Zechariah 14. Behold, the Lord cometh out of his place. And it says this. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Now that takes place in Revelation, doesn't it? He's coming to, to punish the inhabitants of the earth. He's coming to, it says, to smite the earth. It says to smite the nation specifically with the sword of his mouth. Then it says this, verse 21. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Verse 27, spill over into the next chapter. Says this, in that day, so we're talking about the same day, the Lord, that's Jehovah, notice that, that's Jehovah, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So who is he punishing? He's punishing Satan, of course, right? But he's also punishing the inhabitants of the earth, and he's doing it with what? His sore and great. And strong sword. What is that talking about? It's talking about the sword of his mouth. Just like Revelation 19 said. There's no way to try to disconnect these passages. It's the day of the Lord. You know what day Revelation 19 is called? The day of the Lord. It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. This is made the connection through Zechariah 14. And it's the day when Jesus comes back to do what? To punish the nations with what? His sword. What is the Lord? This is prophesied of Jehovah doing it. There's a day in which, according to Isaiah, when Jehovah himself is going to come back out of his place. So it's the coming of God himself. He's going to come back out of his place. And he's going to punish the wicked with the sword of his mouth. Revelation 19, we see the Lord doing that. And it's Jesus Christ himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, we were reading this just a moment ago. It says this, And then shall that wicked be revealed... And then it says this, Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. In context, we're talking about Jesus Christ. What's he going to do? He's going to destroy him with the spirit of his mouth. Now that sword, great and strong sword, is the word of God. That's what that's referring to. He doesn't have a literal sword you know, coming out of his mouth where he's like battling people with his sword and things like that. He's speaking the word of God. That's what he's doing. You know, this is speaking about the word of God. Like that, it says the spirit of his mouth. What did Jesus say? He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, right? The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is always likened unto a sword. Over and over and over again. All the time in the Bible it is. So it's talking about him coming back and he's going to destroy the earth, the inhabitants, and the wicked one with the spirit of his mouth. That's Jesus Christ that does that. So, uh, keep your hand yet here in, in Isaiah. Uh, I, I, should, I should have told you to keep your hand in, in Revelation as well. But I want you to go to Isaiah chapter number 63. Go to Isaiah chapter number 63. We'll look at this also. 
if I didn't tell you, I don't remember if I did or not, go back to Revelation 19. Get that in your right hand, your left hand, go now. Still yet in the book of Isaiah, go to Isaiah 63. We're also told about that same event. Isaiah prophesies and gives us more details about that day when Jehovah himself will come back. Isaiah 63, this is probably something you're familiar with. Look at Isaiah 63, verse 1. It says this, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments? From Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel. I want you to notice that his garments are dyed. Then it says this, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then we're told this, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. It's the Lord, it's Jehovah talking. Verse 2, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the winepress? So the question is now asked to the Lord, he's saying, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the winepress? What was Jesus Christ arrayed in in Revelation 19? He was arrayed in garments that were what? They were red, weren't they? His garment was red. His vesture, it says, was dipped in blood. Right? So his garments were red. And what does it say that he was there to do? Revelation 19, the end of verse 15, it says, And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Isaiah 63, keep reading, it says this in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. Because people say, hey, he's just the mess of the winepress alone. And then he says this, and of the people, there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood, watch this, shall be sprinkled upon my garments. Not my agent's garment. Not my messenger's garment. Not my, my head angel. He says, Upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Notice it's his redeemed. He says the day of vengeance is in my heart. Verse 5. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me. In my fury, it upheld me. So I want you to notice, he says, he even looked and tried to find somebody to help him. You know, so you have the God of the Old Testament. So this creates problems for a lot of people here. You know, there's, there's numerous different people uh, in the subject of Christology that are going to struggle with explaining this passage. Because there's a lot of singular pronouns that are used in this particular passage. Where the Lord himself is speaking. And he's saying, and you have to say if there's one person speaking. It's singular, right? So he says over and over again that he's doing it himself. But then he says this also. He says, and I looked and there was none to help. So he said, I even looked and there was none to help. So if you have the Father sitting there and you got Jesus at his right hand and the Holy Spirit at his left hand, you got the Father sitting there and he's like, and I looked and there was none to help. Like he's looking over top of him. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. And like Jesus is like, over there and the Holy Spirit's like, me, send me. So he says, the Lord says, I looked and there was none to help. That means none. That means no one. Right? Like I said, I'm, I'm sure this feels like I'm insulting your intelligence, but it's that simple. I'm, not, I'm insulting someone's intelligence, but it's not yours, right? He says, I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Then he says this, therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. So he says, my own arm. They're like, yeah, the arm of the Lord. That's the second person of the Trinity. 
I don't think you understand what that means when he's saying, my own arm brought salvation unto me. My arm is not a different person, reject. It's the same exact person. That's the point. My arm is not like another person. It's like, it's like I have Brother Russell coming and doing work you know, during the day, and I'm like, yeah, my own arm did the work for me today. Thank, my, thank you, my own arm. You've got to be kidding me. It's a way of saying that he did it. You know how you do things? With your hand. When the Bible talks about the strength of someone all throughout the Bible, this is one of the things it points to. It's like when the Bible talks about the horn of salvation. It talks about the, you know, the right hand of salvation and things like that a lot as well. It's talking about his right arm, his right hand, or his own arm. You know what he said? He says right before that, I looked and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Then he says, therefore, because there's no one else. Think about what it's teaching within the verse itself. He's saying, because there's not another person, because there's not someone I can delegate this to, I cannot give this assignment to anyone else. Therefore, mine own arm, me, no one else, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. Right. The whole point of the passage is that he doesn't have anyone to help him or to do his work. Amen. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. And then he says this, and my fury, it upheld me. Amen. Is his fury another person too? That's how you would have to interpret this. The whole passage is to tell you there's no one else. It's me and only me. And I looked and I, I trampled it. It's on my garment. It's, it's, it's over and over and over again. What does he look like? He's got blood all over his garments. What is he doing? He's treading the wine press. What does Jesus look like in Revelation 19? <coughs> what does he look like? He's got on garments that are dipped in blood, and it specifically says he is treading the wine press and the wrath of the Almighty God. Guess what? He looked, and there was none to help. He wondered. Yeah, you're right. The great God and our Savior, that's what I'm talking about. That makes you uncomfortable. He, Jesus, looked. Yeah, it may have been before he was born on this earth as a man, before he was actually given the name Jesus, but he, that one and only true God that became flesh and grew up in Nazareth, he said, before he was born on this earth, he said, I looked and there was none to help. I wondered and there was none to uphold. Therefore, my own arm. Do you know what that's talking about specifically? That's God referring to himself as flesh. That's how he worked and did it. I want you to think about this. He is a spirit, right? Do you know what he did? He became a man. And the means by which he wrought salvation was that flesh. And he said, that's my arm. <coughs> Oftentimes, and I'll further prove it to you. You can look this up afterwards. It, you know, I, I, this wasn't particularly part of the sermon right here. But you can look this up in the Bible. I want you to do this, this study. And there's a few times in uh, the book of Psalms that this happens. Where the right hand, I believe, or maybe just hand and, or arm, it'll talk about the arm of flesh. Can't save you. Does anyone ever remember those phrases coming up? And it'll be using them interchangeably. It'll say flesh, and it'll say arm, and it'll say the arm of flesh. You know what he says? My, my own arm brought salvation unto me. He's talking about himself as Jesus. That's what he's talking about. That's, that's the tool. that he, he became flesh, and that's the tool by which he brought salvation to himself. That's what it's talking about. Then you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Super powerful, right? And it, and it just clearly tells you 
that it says, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Amen. He was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. People that will teach adoptionism, if they heard of it, they know what it is. Adoptionism is the teaching that says that he was just a normal man. And that God adopted him with the Holy Spirit of God and basically made him like a God for a period of time. But while he was on the cross, it's also called doceticism. While he was on the cross, he took the Holy Spirit away from him. And he was no longer God at that moment. You got a problem with that. People say, oh, you believe that he stopped being God on the cross. That, I don't know who told you that, but they're, they're not. I wouldn't trust them, you know, with my car keys because they're a liar. No, the Bible says to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That, that verse clearly defies adoptionism. Because while he was dying, when he was reconciling the world on his cross, while he was saving us, dying on that cross, you know what it says? God was in him. He is God. He never stopped being God in foolishness. That is the person of who he is. It's not two people, three people. He's one person. That is who died on the cross. Right? Just like in, in further proof that he didn't stop being God is like in the book of Hebrews. It says that through the Spirit, he reconciled us. What does that mean? That the Spirit was there. Yeah. Right? Oh, I want you to go back to uh, Revelation chapter 19. You can keep your hand there in Isaiah because we're going to a nearby book again. Go back to Revelation 19. I'm going to point out another point to you here. It says this in Revelation 19, <clears throat> verse number 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice it tells him, it calls him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in your left hand, go to the book of Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Lamentations, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And then you get into the minor prophets. Daniel is the first book amongst the minor prophets. Daniel chapter number 7. Daniel chapter number 7. So we were given the description in Revelation 19 of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things was that his eyes were as a flame of fire. He had a, a white vesture that was dipped in blood. We're also given some more specific information in Revelation chapter number 1. And it's told, we're told that this is one like unto the Son of Man. Or the proving that that is the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19. Which that's not even uh, disputed. But we're given another detail about him. It says in Revelation 1.14, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. So his head and his hairs were white like wool. That's another detail that we are given about how he looks. Well, go to Daniel chapter number 7. I want to show you a couple things here. Daniel chapter number 7. Look at verse number 9 first. Verse number 9 it says this, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Uh, who is the Ancient of Days? That's, of course, God, the great God. The Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. And then it says this, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. Who is that? That's the description that's given of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, isn't it? That's the exact description, a very specific description that is given of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. Lines up with the Ancient of Days in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Now, what, is the, what does the man look like that comes back in Revelation 19? He looks like, it's, Revel, it's just like Revelation 1, the same description of Jesus. He's got eyes as a flame of fire, doesn't he? 
He's got on a white garment, doesn't he? That's dipped in blood. Isn't that the same description that's given of the Ancient of Days? It is, isn't it? So, who would, who would you uh, 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 propose is coming back then? Could, I, could you, would it be correct to also say the Ancient of Days is coming back? It would be. Look at verse number 21. It says this. I beheld in the same horn, that's the Antichrist, made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Look at verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Notice all the saints are coming with him. And notice who it is that comes back. The Ancient of Days. You know what it is? It's the Ancient of Days and our Savior. Jesus Christ. You know what it is? It's the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's as clear as day. Go to 1 Timothy 6. We're going to end there. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. And Anderson and I somewhere just ripped her hair out when I said that. 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Look at verse number 13, it says this, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and then it says this, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate, witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, now watch this, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everybody here know what potentate means? Everybody know what potentate means? Anybody? Give it to me. Yeah. Potentate, I'll give you a way to memorize it. Then if you say something is potent, what are you saying? That is strong. Right? And that is, that is, that, if you take a drink of like some kombucha and you're like, man, that was, that was some potent kombucha. You're saying that is strong. Potentate, like he said, references, it's saying it is the highest ruler. That's what that means, especially in the, it's it's saying it is it is it is a an, an ex, a, a, a expressive way of saying a high ruler. In this case, it says this: who is the blessed and only potentate? It's specifically saying that he has supreme power. It's a reference to power. That's what strong or power, right? It's saying that there's no one above him that has any more power than him. It says that he is the, it says the blessed and only, you know, power ruler, you know, potentate. That's what that means. The blessed and only potentate. Let that sink in. Verse 14 again, well, who is it talking about? That thou keep this command without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times, Jesus, he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. Right? The only powerful one. Jesus is going to show that. There's no one else more powerful than him. Right? It says, and it says, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let's test this. Revelation 19, the actual uh, record of his coming. What does he have written on his thigh? King of kings and Lord of lords. So who is the potentate talking about? Due to context, number one, and then due to comparing scripture with scripture? Jesus Christ. Which in his times, and also, I still remember his name, Clive. Clive you remember who Clive is? Clive is a grammarian. And if I need to call and ring him up on the phone, I will call him. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, and then it says this, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. You know what that is? That's the coming of the great God. That description there does not meet that of an average or normal man. That description does not meet that of a divine man. If you try to dream up some foolishness that's unscriptural, some man that is escalated or elevated to some high, powerful you know, position of authority. This says that who's coming back is the blessed and only potentate, and that he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. It says that this person is the only person that has immortality, dwelling in the light that no man can approach unto. And then it says this, whom no man has seen nor can see. You know how that is? That's the great God. Amen. That's who that is. That's the great God. You know what it is? It's the ancient of days. That's who it is. You know what it is? It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When Jesus Christ comes back, and, I'll, and I'm going to end with this, when Jesus Christ comes back, it's not the coming of just a man. It's the coming of the God of this universe. It's the coming of the God who spoke this world into existence, who created every atom, and he is. He is the ruler of all. He has all power. There is no one, you know, he, there's no one that's more powerful than him. He is the blessed and only potentate. To the wicked and the unsaved, that should be scary. It's not just a man coming back. Right? Like Islam teaches. Which, which those that you know, subscribe to Islam, they're, they're the wicked in those other nations. They teach, hey, it's just a man that's coming back. No, my friend. For you, it's much, much worse than that. It's the great God that's coming back. That's who's coming back. It's the ruler of this universe. It's the creator of all and the Lord of all. The Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That's who's coming back. Do you know what it is? What is the blessed hope? What is the blessed hope? It is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible prophesies in the Old Testament of the coming of Jehovah. Do you know what that takes place? When Jehovah comes back, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He comes back because, of course, that is the Son of God. He took on that flesh, and he will forever be the Son of God. But do you know who the Son of God is? It's the great God in the flesh. That's who it is. It's Jehovah. You need to be able to prove this. There's, this is, it, it's, it's irrefutable. There's no way around it. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be coming back with all his saints. And when he does that, the Bible teaches that's the glorious appearance of the great God. You know what that should do to you? That should motivate even you. Hey, you're not going to, you know, he's not going to come back and, and, you know, you're not one of the nations he's smiting, right? He's not coming back to destroy you and to cast you into hell. No, that's not, why, you know, that's not going to happen for you when he comes back. But, you know, the Bible talks about being ashamed at his coming. The Bible, that, that verse right there said that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? If you don't keep the commandment, you're going to have spots on your garments when he comes back. If you don't keep the commandment, you are rebukable. What, what do you think he's going to do? Jesus says that he's going to come back. He says, I'm going to give to every man according as his work shall be. 
You're going to stand before God. He's either going to you know, be pleased with you or, or not pleased with you. People need to get this idea out of their mind of just this, this mushy, teddy bear type God. Even Christians sometimes. Because we're on his side, it makes it easier. Like, you'll overlook it. I'm good. And I'm going to be, you know, I'm one of the saints. Yeah, you are one of the saints. But he's still going to reward you according as your work shall be. And he is a fair and just God. And if you have, have, if you have done work that is unsatisfactory for him, he will tell you. He's not, you know, when he stood before Pilate, when he stood before all of these rulers, this was the great God standing before him. And he was not blushing. He was not concerned. He was not worried. When you stand before him, you're not too much for him to handle. When, when God in the Old Testament flooded the whole, the whole earth and destroyed all of the wicked, he's not sitting in heaven like flinching. What? People are screaming for mercy. And he is stone cold seated upon his throne. Because that's the judgment that they deserve. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is a just God. People are dying you know, uh, people are screaming for help and mercy, and he's not moving. He's upon his throne, and he's not repenting. You're going to stand before that God, Jesus Christ. That's why you're commanded, keep this commandment without spot. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why you should. Because he's the blessed, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's speaking to a Christian. Do you know why? He, of course, all that gives glory to him. Do you know what that did to Timothy when he read that, I'm sure? He thought, man, that's the person that I'm going to stand in front of. That's the man that's going to be appearing and I'm going to be standing before. Do you know what it is? Who only hath immortality. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen or can see. That's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That should instill fear in your heart. That that, think about that, that that God is coming back and you're going to look in the light of his eyes. And he's going to look at you and he's going to judge you for what you've done on this earth. It's not just the coming of a man. The world has a lot more to fear. The God that created this earth is coming back and he is going to recompense upon your head what you deserve for the world, right? But he's also going to give to you according to what your work shall be too. The appearing, the blessed hope is the appearing of the great God and our Savior. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you, dear Lord, for saving us. We thank you, dear God, for just how amazing the Bible is. We thank you for not sending another person, for not trying to find a man to do it because no one else could have done it. We thank you for the clarity of who you are. We thank you for becoming flesh and everything that you went through for us. Help us to glorify you by studying your word and preaching your word. Help us to go soberly. Help us to do work. Help us to do everything that we can do, dear God, that we might not be ashamed, that we might have confidence, like John says in 1 John. We might have confidence at your appearing and at your coming. Help us, dear God, to uh, know our Bibles. Help us to teach it to our children. Help us to defend the deity, your deity, until our last breath. And help our church to be known for that. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. amen.